0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel.
1: The reading this evening comes from 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Father, now what we know not, we pray that you would teach us what we have not, we pray you would give us, and what we are not, Father, we pray that you would make us, for the sake of your Son, Jesus, and for our own good. Amen. You may be seated. Good to see you all this evening. Perhaps you might have visited last week, and I, I missed you. I wasn't here. Uh, I was in Dallas for a wedding for our dear brother, Matt Templeton, and his new wife, Chelsea, who many of you know. Uh, but it's good to be back. It's, very, it's a sad, sad Sunday indeed for us when we aren't able to be with you. Genesis is done. Clint tied that up very nicely last week. But there's a very real sense in which we'll never actually leave Genesis. It's the foundation for the Bible, and what I said a couple of weeks about it is true. If we don't understand Genesis, we likely won't understand the rest of the Bible. So we're going to... We'll even next or week after next as we begin, John we will be referring back to Genesis. Genesis is all throughout the gospel according to John, so it'll be fun to go back and look at it. But while undoubtedly we could have spent three years just slowly chewing on and digesting every morsel of Genesis for us, I'm actually glad to be moving on. We'll begin the Gospel According to John two weeks. So if you you don't have a Bible reading plan, that you're just reading the Bible throughout the week, I just recommend maybe start reading that. Start reading in John 1 this week and maybe just read it several times over the next couple months. It's our conviction here at Christ Church to make the regular diet of our preaching, to be going through entire books, preaching through them expositionally, to expose the meaning of the text and its importance for our understanding of God and for our own lives. But as Clint gave a fairly cryptic little tease last Sunday, we're going to take two Sundays here, this week and the next, to think through something that we've been studying together with the elders at Desert Springs Church for the past two years. Uh, My gospel community is convinced that we're going to begin snake handling up here or something. Um, If it's not clear, perhaps some of you are either joining us tonight for the first time or don't know much of our history. Uh, Desert Springs Church, another great church in town, sent uh, a good handful of us almost a year ago, a little over a year ago, uh, to begin this church. So Desert Springs is our sending church, so we still have a great relationship with them. And so we decided to study something very, very important um, together. So here it is, the exciting big reveal. It's not snake handling or some like really wacky end times view or something. Uh, church polity. Oh. <laughs> what, uh, what is church polity? Uh, church politic, the politic of the church. Not like the politics of the gossip of the church or who can make the best casserole or something but the government of the church, the structure of the church, its people and its leadership. I've read before that thinking about church polity is like stretching, super boring until something tears. And that's, I think, exactly right. It's very boring to think about what we're going to think about for the next two weeks, uh, but it's going to be very, very important for us to think about what we're going to think about for the next two weeks. In fact, it was the actual tearing of several churches that we were either close to or observed from a distance that actually caused us to want to begin to think about this issue. Let me, let me give you a bit of a spectrum for ways in which churches can be structured or governed. On the far end of the spectrum, you have a clear hierarchical structure where you have decision-making coming from above from outside of a local church, things get fed down to local churches. Think like the Roman Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, the Episcopal Church. This this building that we are meeting in right now belongs to a hierarchy of the Episcopal Church of the United States. But then a little further on the spectrum, you have most Presbyterian churches who have elders. But while these elders ultimately submit to their outside and governing presbytery, they largely govern themselves, and they make nearly all decisions on behalf of the church. So we would call this an elder rule church. So a hierarchical structure or an elder rule church, and then I'm actually not sure on which side of an elder rule church this model is, uh, where you've got like the CEO Moses guy, right? Right? Uh, where it's all just on one guy. He may have an Aaron right next to him or some, something like that by his side, but basically it's on him to make all of the important decisions of the church. And the church lives and the church dies on his charisma and his leadership. So uh, I, don't, I actually don't know where that falls on, on this spectrum, but we're moving in this way. And then on the far end of this spectrum, we have essentially like a direct democracy congregationalism where each member has a vote and essentially no decision is made in the life of the church without the vote of the majority, including budgets or carpet colors or tile colors or moving to a contemporary service or even firing the pastor. Right? All of these things are based on the vote of its members. So if on this end of the spectrum, the pastors or elders essentially carry all of the authority and the role of the members is seemingly diminished. On the other end of the spectrum, the role of the pastor or elder is diminished and the individual members seem to carry most, if not all, of the authority. So, while most of the pastors at Desert Springs and I would have said that we were an elder-led church, perhaps a little bit this side of an elder-ruled church. We were more of an elder-led church at Desert Springs. Reality and practice actually showed that we really operated more as an elder-ruled church. Decisions were made by the elders, and we sometimes sought feedback, sometimes sought counsel from members, but more often when we made a decision and then told the church, it was more just as an FYI. Hey, here's what we decided, and this is what we're doing, and then kind of, whether you like it or you don't. So while this made for really easy and efficient decision-making in the life of our church, we decided that we, as a church, ought to structure our leadership and authority by what the Bible actually teaches, not just what we've always done or what is most efficient. So we set out to figure, out almost about two years ago, Uh, What the Bible actually teaches about the nature of the church and where the center of its authority lies. So this has been a long project for us and a long, many, many books read and many hours of conversations around tables and over emails. So here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to ask two questions and hopefully answer these two questions with what we found in our study over the past two years. The first question is just, what is the church And the second question is, who is responsible for local churches? And then we'll consider a couple of transitionary thoughts for our week before we conclude this study next Sunday. Okay, so one quick caveat. If you're not a Christian, and I've actually met a couple of you this evening, we're we're really glad you're here. Uh, We just may be addressing themes tonight and using some language that might be unfamiliar to you, but I'm actually hopeful that uh, while a lot of this may not be directly applicable to your lives in the same way that like, I don't know, a a high school American government class might not be all that applicable to you if you're from Mongolia or something, uh, but I'm hopeful that this actually, uh, you'll see something beautiful and attractive about the way that Jesus has ordered and structured his church. So let's go ahead and get going. First, The first question for us tonight, what is the church? So in answering this first question, I want to take a 30,000 foot flyover from who the people of God were in the old covenant before Christ to who the people of God are now presently in the new covenant, now that Christ has come. So in doing this, I'm going to largely be paraphrasing the content of one of the most helpful books that we of one of the most helpful chapters in any one of the books that we read over the past two years from one of my seminary professors and i've already shared this chapter with our gospel community leaders um, and i'd be happy to share this chapter i just have a scanned pdf that i could easily email to you if you have more questions or you'd like to read or think more on this but i have four four propositions four thoughts for you this evening informing our understanding on what the church is. So what is the church? First, the church is the one people of God. As we saw in Genesis, the way to be in saving covenant with God has always been the same. In Old Testament or New, we are saved by grace through faith in the promises of God. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, we saw from Genesis 15. Many times in the Old Testament, the same word that we use for church, ecclesia, or assembly, the gathered people of God, is used to describe Israel. The church or Israel, the same word often gets used. In Romans 9, in Galatians 3, Paul says that the descendants of Abraham are those who share in Abraham's faith, not necessarily those who share in his DNA. 1 Peter 2, what Isabel read for us, uses language for the church that would have previously only been used for Israel. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. These are all phrases to describe Israel that now Peter is using to describe the church. So there is continuity between Israel and the church. There has always been one people of God. However, number two, The New Covenant Church really is new. While there have always been one people of God, that's not to say that Israel and the church are the same kind of communities. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets looked forward towards a coming new and everlasting covenant that would change in many, many ways. The covenant would extend beyond ethnic Israel and out to the nations, for one thing, but also in the Old Covenant, God related to his people through mediators human mediators, prophets, priests, kings. The people's knowledge of God and relationship with God actually depended on these few and special men. So when the leaders did well, the people benefited. When the leaders did not do well, the people suffered. But listen to the nature of the change that Jeremiah looks forward to in Jeremiah 31. Listen to what he's looking toward in the new covenant after Christ. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And listen to this. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Whereas it was possible to be part of the old covenant people of God and still not be part of, like, the saved remnant. Think Jacob and Esau that we talked about. Both physical descendants of Abraham, but only one of them actually had faith in the promises of God. Nevertheless, the need for human mediators to give knowledge is actually no more in the new covenant because everyone in the new covenant knows God. In the old covenant, the way you know God is to know him through a mediator. Someone teaches you, gives you his word. This is now not true in the new covenant. We'll think more about this in a minute. In fact, the the new covenant... In the New Covenant, you actually can't be a part of God's people without having first saving knowledge of God through Christ. Knowledge of God through Christ is the way into the New Covenant, not some like ancillary benefit like people had in the Old Covenant. Yeah, it'd be nice to know God a little bit more uh, in the Old Covenant, but I guess we'll, we'll just wait on to hear from him from this, this mediator. Not so in the New Covenant. The way you actually enter the New Covenant is to know God and then through the rest of our lives, uh, know him more deeply. Another massive change in the New Covenant is the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Whenever we see the Holy Spirit highlighted or emphasized in the Old Testament, he only comes periodically on these same few prophets, priests, or kings, occasionally some temple workers. But the Spirit comes and goes on Saul and on David. But Joel, too, looks toward a day when the Spirit would come on all of God's people— Not just a handful, uh, every couple centuries or something, but the the Spirit would come and inhabit male, female, young, old, slave, free, everyone. God's people in the Old Covenant didn't need more Spirit-filled or Spirit-led leaders. They actually needed, individually, the Spirit to come into their hearts, to bind them to God and to bind them to each other, which is exactly what happens at Pentecost in Acts 2. The Spirit comes, hovers over the people like he did over the temple or the tabernacle in the Old Covenant, and then didn't inhabit a building, but then inhabited individuals. I'll think more on that in a second. But these are ordinary and individual people who are sealed for eternity by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And to not have the Spirit is to not have Christ or to be part of his people. Paul says in Romans 8, 9. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not part of his people. So while there is continuity in God's people from old covenant to new, the new covenant actually is extremely new. There is a newness of the new covenant. So third, we just mentioned the church is God's new temple. What is the church? It is God's new temple, As we'll see reiterated in John 1, the prophets often reminded God's people that the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament was a type or a pattern of something that was greater to come. And then Jesus fulfills this anticipatory nature of the temple. It was always looking forward, and then he walks on the scene. He is where God meets with his people. He is the place of sacrifice and atonement. So Jesus is the temple, but he is also the temple builder. He builds a new temple. He builds his people, whereby now his spirit can inhabit, dwell, and move to the nations. It's not a stationary temple like it was in the old covenant, but now it is an individual, corporate, and mobile temple that is designed to go to the nations. So if individual Christians are the temple of God— then the church is the corporate outworking of that. As Isabel read for us in First Peter 2, 5, Peter says, You yourselves, Christians, are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. We together are individual stones that the Lord has made that then he stacks up on top of each other to make something useful, a place where he can live, move, and uh, show himself to the world. So the church is the temple of God. Lastly, the church is God's new humanity. Let me just read you what Stephen Welland powerfully says here. The new covenant community is not simply an extension of Israel. It is not an amalgam of the best elements of Israel and the best of the Gentiles. It's a new humanity and part of the dawning of the new creation. A third entity that is neither Jewish nor Gentile, but Christian. God's old plans always anticipated the creation of this new humanity. Christ fulfilled the old covenant and identified the new humanity with himself by inaugurating a new and better covenant. So this is, the church is God's new humanity. And if all of this is the case, that there is continuity between the people of God, but that the new covenant is really new, and that God's new people are his temple and his new man and that not just a few mediatory prophets or priests rule over the people who the people who hardly know right from wrong and what is pleasing to God but now God has come to and made a people who actually know God and actually know what is right and pleasing to him and they do personally know God And while the New Testament has plenty to say to leaders, leaders still must lead, all of this that we've just outlined seems to make it an inevitability that some new kind of governance, some new kind of structure for how God has ordered his people uh, would be required from Old Covenant to New, where Old covenant people of God don't know him, but just through a few words every now and then from someone uh, coming to them on God's behalf to now where all of God's people are inhabited by his spirit and know him, it would seem that a change of structure, a change of governance would be required. So now let's figure out if there actually is a change in governance and ask who is responsible for local churches Again, we'll try to answer this question with a few smaller sub points. So here we go. First, while I told you that the New Covenant people have no need for human mediators, that isn't to say that they don't have a mediator. Who is responsible for local churches? First, Christ is the only mediator. In his life and death and resurrection, Jesus stands before God the Father and intercedes on our behalf as our substitute, as our advocate Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He represents us and he stands between God and and his holiness and our sin. And he argues on behalf of his own merit. So, this reality precludes any human mediators between God and his redeemed people. If Jesus, there is one mediator between God and man, we read, then there are no other human mediators required. Unlike the Catholic Church who maintains that human priests still mediate and dispense grace through the giving of the Eucharist and offer forgiveness through, the, for the, through confession, nearly all Protestant denominations and individual churches would agree that Christ is the only mediator at a theological level. But then at a practical level, I'm afraid we still can implicitly operate under a pretty stark dichotomy that there are these super spiritual pastors and leaders up here and then just everyday ordinary Christians down here. So perhaps the mentality for so-called ordinary Christians can more often than not be, I, I really don't have to be all that serious about my faith. I don't really have to be overly concerned about the affairs of my church, because that's the pastor's job. God has given him this job to do, and he will take care of the church, uh, and he'll be super spiritual on my behalf. Do you see the problem? Do you see the dichotomy that we're still working under, that there are professional Christians and then ordinary Christians? And this kind of thinking is actually no different than the kind of thinking that Israel had in the Old Covenant of prophets, priests, and kings doing the work and acting on behalf of the people who just don't know any better? This is not the picture of the church in the New Covenant. In the New Testament, the church is made up of individuals who all have the Spirit. They are all gifted in individual ways. They all have access to God through Christ, and they are all all priests, every single one of them, every Christian who is saved by God and been given the Spirit, have all been gifted by him. They all have the Spirit. There is no longer a qualitative difference between people and leaders. No difference any longer in the New Covenant. In the church, leaders are gifted with the task to lead the people, but to lead them as fellow believers, not as authoritative rulers. So when the issue of church discipline comes up in Matthew 18, Jesus doesn't tell us to tell it to the elders. Now what does he say? He says, tell it to the church. When Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5 for not putting a man out of the church who has been arrogantly and loudly uh, proclaiming how he is sleeping with his mother-in-law, Paul doesn't rebuke or address the elders. At the beginning of the letter or specifically here in 1 Corinthians 5, he, Paul, rebukes and addresses the church. What are you doing? Put this guy out. He's not of you, church. When Paul tells the Galatians church, the Galatian church in Galatians 1, that if he, another apostle, even an angel from heaven comes preaching a different gospel than Christ and Christ crucified, get rid of him. Let him be cursed. Paul's not addressing the elders there. The letter is addressed to the churches in Galatia, regular, ordinary old Christians who know the gospel and carry the authority of Christ as his body on earth. So Christ is our only mediator, but this gets us to our second point in answering the question, who is responsible for local churches? Each local church, this is two, each local church must govern its own affairs. As opposed to a hierarchical model of church governance, each local church, each local ecclesia, each local assembly is a kingdom outpost. It's a local embassy for the kingdom of heaven here on earth. In the New Testament, each local church has been given sufficient gifts in its people to govern its own affairs. And as we just mentioned, while church leaders certainly carry unique responsibility to lead the congregation, the New Testament letters were written to churches. Other than 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, all of Paul's letters are to churches, not necessarily just to pastors. In his letters to seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus addresses all of these seven churches individually and separately. Another one of my seminary professors says, when Jesus rebuked each church, the reprimand was directed at the church for the trouble that it had brought upon itself. In turn, when the Lord corrected a church, his expectation was that the church itself would repent and set straight its own matters. No call for help, from any other church was needed to rectify the sinful situation and bring about restoration. The churches had gotten themselves into trouble and they were expected to depart from their trouble and embrace the right path. There was no indication of any necessary assistance from the outside in terms of other churches or structures. Each church had resources of its own to make the change. God has gifted and given everything that local churches need to follow him in obedience and for the good of the gospel and for their own holiness." So none of this is necessarily telling us the right way and model of church polity or government, but it is paving a very serious theological foundation for us. So lastly, here on this question of responsibility, who is responsible for local churches, perhaps we'll address a question that many of you may have been silently asking. What about elders? Well, elders carry a complementary authority, like to complement something. It comes alongside and is a different kind of authority. Throughout the New Testament, we see several texts which address elders, their character, how they are to lead. Elders are to shepherd. They are to protect the flock in sound doctrine. They're to teach. They're to counsel. They're to persuade, exhort, recommend. They are to be pastoral, they are to be fatherly, they are to be patient. And congregants in churches are actually commanded to submit to the elders, to submit to the leadership that godly elders provide. But the authority of elders is not limitless, and it should not go unchecked. We already saw Paul authorize authorize the Galatians to curse even an apostle or an angel from heaven who doesn't preach the gospel. So the same would certainly be true for some hypothetical elder who strays from right doctrine. Get rid of him if he's not preaching the gospel. So while elders can carry a certain degree of authority, we uh, have actually been convinced that the final and central location of authority— belongs to the congregation. Local churches carry authority. But it is the elder's responsibility to lead the congregation and using that authority wisely and in a God-honoring way. One author writes, it's as if God has given the church a tool, this authority that God has given to a church. It's as if God has given the church a tool and then he has given the elders to instruct, train, and lead them in using that tool. Now, none of this is explicitly definitive in the text that we've referenced tonight, but it is the groundwork for what I think are the definitive passages that we'll study together next next week in Matthew 16 and 18. If you want to try to read through those this week on your own and maybe put a couple of puzzle pieces together on your own, but we'll spend 30 or 40 minutes on those two chapters next week and hopefully arrive definitively at why and where the authority of a church lies in its members, in, in the congregation. And while we haven't yet gotten to these definitive passages, here's the explicit payoff for us all. We, along with Desert Springs, will be transitioning our polity. We'll be transitioning our government, our structure, away from an elder rule model and more, and not more, toward an elder-led congregationalism. These words might not mean a ton to you. Next week, we'll go into more specifics about what that practically means and what it will look like, an elder-led congregationalism. But essentially, nothing is going to change except for our three times a year member meetings. In fact, Anticipating this move is actually why we began having member meetings here at Christ Church over the, over the last year, to, to prime the pump a little bit, to get you on the on-ramp for what this will look like in the life of our church. Hopefully after next week, you members will see why your attendance at member meetings is actually so important. And perhaps after next week, those of you who have been attending Christ Church, been visiting with us, been observing for a little bit, hopefully after next week you'll actually be moved toward joining us, towards becoming a member here, towards moving towards our next membership class in October. And as I mentioned at the beginning, I think we here, and at our time at Desert Springs, did a fairly good job of keeping the lines of communication open between the elders and the congregation. So in that sense, there's not going to be a ton of change. We just want to put a couple of actual processes and structures in place. And in fact, in observing several other churches who are operating with this form of polity, this form of elder-led congregationalism, I've become convinced that this kind of structure, church government, is God's means for discipling the church into its identity as a kingdom of priests. That it actually has a job to do, That it has a tool to use and how we, as the church, ought to use it. Now, I can imagine that most of you have a question or two or perhaps several dozen. Believe me, though, I can nearly assure you that whatever question you may have, Clint and I have had the exact same questions over the past two years. So while we'll spend an entire second Sunday on this next week, as well as devoting quite a bit of time to this issue at our next member meeting, I want to perhaps allay some of those fears in telling you what we are not proposing. Elder-led congregationalism is not a direct democracy where every decision, the color of the carpet or the tile, or if we're going to buy a new copier, or whatever the small decision might be, first has to go through committees and then is brought forward to the congregation for a majority vote. That is not what we're moving to. Where there are fracturing votes of disunity and infighting, we are just, we're not simply trying to just give the power to the people because we're Americans and that's what we do, right? (laughs) Nor will member meetings be a time for every person to have a time with the open mic, uh, to air their grievances with Sister Brenda or someone, right? We're not moving toward mob rule in our church, nor just kind of putting the theological direction and philosophy of our church up for grabs for whichever small section can get the most power. That's not what we're doing. Part of the elder-led thing is that the elders still lead. We'll be leading our member meetings. We'll be leading the theology and philosophy of our church. Unfortunately, many congregationalist churches that I've known or observed, perhaps that you've even been a part of, kind of just ignore all the parts about elders. They like all the parts about the the membership and the authority of the church, but then forget about all of the times that God in the New Testament actually gives very specific commands and orders and structures for the church to elders. So we're not going to ignore all those parts. So I hope that you can actually see that this isn't going to be a huge change in what we're doing or how we think of the church. We're just going to make explicit what perhaps was implicit. We're going to formalize what might have been assumed. We're just stretching now. Church polity is like stretching. This is boring stuff, but it is for our health so that we don't tear. I'd also encourage you, if you do have questions or concerns, as difficult as it may be to, to just hold on to those. I'll likely answer many of the questions that you have bouncing around in your head uh, next Sunday. And for you members, we'll have some Q&A time the following day, a week from tomorrow at our member meeting. And I'm just really excited about all this. This has been a year and a half, almost two, to share all of this with you. As Mark Dever says, which by the way, I didn't tell you this, but basically uh, the only reason I went to Washington, D.C. in March was to think through these things, and to observe a member meeting at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. We'll talk more about that next week, but Dever, the pastor at Capitol Hill, says that the church is like the setting prongs on a beautiful diamond engagement ring. The gospel is the diamond, the thing that we want to draw attention to, the beautiful thing. But strong and sturdy prongs are actually necessary, so that People can see and behold the thing that we want them to behold and so that the diamond doesn't fall off. So I'm confident that we're going to have a stronger setting. We're going to have a stronger setting for which the gospel can sit on and be displayed in this move of our polity. And as we, Lord willing, begin to take the job that Jesus has given to all of us, individual Christians, as kingdom priests, as we begin to take this job and to hold and use this tool more seriously as individuals and together as a church. And I I just couldn't be more excited and thankful to be a part of the same ring, to be the prongs together with you, to be part of the same body, toes and noses and spleens and elbows and knees. Yeah, spleens are unnecessary, aren't they? Uh, Not spleens. There's no one out there that's a spleen. Uh, You're all useful. But I couldn't be more thankful that we are together here as a church. You current members and perhaps you future members as well. So let's pray and thank the Lord for his wisdom and his goodness. Lord, you are wise and good. From eternity past, you knew of our rebellion You knew of your plan of not only saving sinners and reconciling individuals by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf individually, but that you have not just called individuals, but you have called a people. That you have, in your foreknowledge, in your eternal wisdom and goodness, have planned and ordered the church to be the display of all that you have done in this world, that we might lift high the name of Jesus, that we might show the beauty of the gospel, not only in how you have reconciled us to you, but how you have reconciled us to each other. Father, we pray for this kind of unity within our church. We pray that you would cause us to as we love you more, that we would love others more, that we would love each other and care for one another even more. We would care for an unbelieving world around us even more because of what you have done for us individually and together as your people. That we do pray for unity within our church. We do pray for unity with Desert Springs. We're so thankful for even the leadership of some of the elders there and our thinking through these things We're so thankful for your word that you have not left us to guess, that you have not left us to uh, walk blindly through our lives and together as a church, but that your word is a lamp into our feet and that you care. That you care for us, that you care for our church, and that you care for the church, your people, in every nation of the world and throughout time. We're thankful for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.